All right. Uh, we're going to continue on in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 10, Lord willing, this morning we're going to look at verses 5 through 34. So Isaiah chapter 10, as we continue on uh, in our study of the book of Isaiah, verses 5 through 34. This is the word of God. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Calno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpit and Samaria like Damascus? As my hand seized the kingdom of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says... By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures, like a mighty one I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. The splendor of his forests and fertile fields, it will completely destroy as when a sick person wastes away. And the remaining trees of his forest will be so few that a child could write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel The survivors of Jacob will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed. Overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction 
decreed upon the whole land. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon, my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. The Lord Almighty will lash them with a whip as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb, and he will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. In that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you have grown so fat. They enter Ayoth, they pass through Migron, they store supplies at Michmash. They go over the pass and say, we will camp overnight at Geba. Ramah trembles, Gibeah of Saul flees. Cry out, daughter Galim, listen, Lashish, poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight, the people of Gibeam take cover. This day they will halt at Nob, they will shake their fist at the mount of daughter Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Lord, you are named in this text in different ways, and and two, you are the Holy One of Israel, and you are the Mighty One of Israel. And Father, I pray that you will help us to know you. I pray that you will help us to know you as you are, both mighty and holy. I pray that you will give us a vision of who you are in your nature and being that allows us to trust and allows us to truly commit ourselves to you and our future to you. Allow us to know that you are a God who uses strange and surprising things. You are a God who who is at work to, to bring good out of them. You have a plan and purposes and promises. Lord, we thank you that even when there is seeming chaos, you are in control. We thank you that you have a plan for this world, that, that it is not a matter of, of random events and circumstances just happening one after another, but, but there's a purpose beyond it. Lord, if we are not able to see the purpose, help us to at least see you. And for those who are here who are struggling this morning, for those who are going through difficult times, Lord, be with them in a special way. Clear the darkness in front of their eyes so they can see the Holy One high and exalted, the train of His robe filling the temple. 
the burning ones crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Give us eyes to see. And failing that, give us hearts to trust. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been uh, working with us through Isaiah, or if you're familiar with the first number of chapters, uh, you know that one of the great problems is that the people of Israel are looking to everyone except God uh, for security. They're looking to all of their allies. They're looking to military. Uh, to, you know, today we'd almost want to say it's sort of the equivalent of making political alliances and then trusting you know, your, your economy, uh, trusting your healthcare system, your education system. Things will be okay as long as we can just surround ourselves with sort of the right collection of alliances, things will be all right. And Israel looks around, or sort of Judah and Jerusalem look around and they say, what should we do? Well, the, the dominant power of the day is Assyria. If we can make an alliance with Assyria, then no one will be able to harm us. They're more powerful than our other sort of localized enemies. So let's go right to the top. Let's bypass these smaller alliances. Let's make an alliance with Assyria then we'll be okay. In fact, not only will we be protected, if we make an alliance with Assyria, they'll come and they'll take care of our problems. They'll take care of all of these other people who are bothering us. And again and again, God sends Isaiah to say, no, do not fear what people fear. Do not look to human beings to get you out of this. Trust me. Trust me. And again and again, the people say, well, you, you can't quantify God. You, you can quantify military spending in the budget. You, you can count chariots. You, you can look at what Assyria has. We, we can index the strength of Assyria versus the strength of, of Damascus. And Isaiah comes again and again and says, no, stop counting. Stop all of your empirical investigations, all of your tabulating, all of your calculation. Stop it. Just trust God. And that's the one thing that people will not do. So here, God says, all right, Isaiah, go and tell them this. You want Assyria? Assyria is going to come to you. And Assyria is going to come to you and destroy you. Because that's what's in their heart. That's what they're like. This is what you want. Be careful what you wish for. I'm pleading with you. Just trust in me. But if you will refuse to do that, if you will insist on seeking other people, if you will insist on finding security in the nations of the world around you, and if you insist on finding security in the military of the superpower as the umbrella over you, then you have to understand you need to be careful for what you wish for because you will get exactly what you want. You want Assyria to come to you, Assyria will come to you. But this is what they're going to do. They're going to come to you. And they're going to destroy you. They're going to come to you, Israel. Remember, of course, Israel is the northern ten tribes, Judah and Jerusalem in the south. 
They're going to run and they're going to rampage through the north and destroy them and plunder them. And they're going to come to the point where they surround Jerusalem in a siege. And then we'll see a little bit later what God does. They'll all be careful what you wish for. Now, one of the amazing things about this text, though, is that God says in verse 6, I send him, that is Assyria, I send him against a godless nation. Who's the godless nation? It's Israel. I am going to send Assyria. Assyria is going to be the tool that I use to chastise and discipline and punish my people because of their sin. And then God says, but I will also then punish Assyria for what they do. Now, how is that right? How does that sort out? God sends Assyria to punish his people for their idolatry and their sin, and then he turns around and he punishes Assyria for what they do. Well, verses 12 through 15 tell you, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. By my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And here is something... that you can either accept or you can't. Uh, teaching a course uh, on apologetics at Heritage right now, the, the defense of the faith. And one of my students uh, in their major paper, which dealt with suffering and evil, at one point said... You can either accept that God has a purpose behind suffering and evil that you will not understand, or you give up your faith. And I've thought about that for a couple of weeks now. Not too often I think of anything students say. It's actually, it's a miracle that I read that line because out of the 12 pages, I probably skimmed a paragraph and then gave them their mark. But uh, it, was just, it was amazing that, that that was the one, the one sentence that, that I read. You can accept it or you give up your faith. You know, I'm not sure that we're, we're actually usually that honest about the cost of some of these things. So usually what we do, it seems to me, is that as soon as something pushes beyond the boundaries of what we're comfortable with, we just ignore it. We don't actually engage, look, this is the implications of what you're saying you believe. We're so quick to pull back 
And then we wonder why our witness is so anemic in a world which is filled with real suffering. And what we have is is a bumper sticker to give to people. And very quickly people realize that in terms of deep engagement with the entailments of our faith and real life, we're often pretty shallow. We, we, we just want a religion that makes us feel reasonably good so we can go home feeling reasonably good with a bright future. Now, there are those texts, too, but Isaiah 10 is not one of them. Isaiah 10 tells you, look, There is horrific, large-scale pain and suffering in the world, but God is still on the throne behind it. And you won't see that when all you can see is the Assyrian army coming in. So you can either accept it by faith or you don't have faith. But empirically, look at life And you can either see God above it, or you won't see Him at all. That's why I, earlier Isaiah is pleading with the people, do not call everything conspiracy. These people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Trust God. Cling to Him. What God says is, I will use Assyria, and I will punish Assyria because in the exact same event, I am intending good purposes to bring about good, and the Assyrians are intending evil for their own self-aggrandizement. In other words, same event. God is not merely, and this is what we, we tend to think, that God, if we, if we think of you know, a big view of the sovereignty of God, we tend to think things happen some, an event happens, then Romans 8.28 kicks in. So, so this happened, now God will bring out good. God will bring good out of it, somehow. Because he's like the master chess player. You know, whatever the move is, he'll counter it. He'll, he'll always win, but he just sort of, he's reactionary. The event takes place, then God works it out for good. This text tells you the event doesn't take place and God works it out for good. This tells you that God is simultaneously at work with the human agents. The temporal and even logical sequence is the same. God doesn't say, oh, I see Assyria is going to go in. I wonder how I can salvage this. He says, I'm sending Assyria. They're my tool in this situation. Now, they don't, they don't intend that. That's not what they're thinking. They're going in mocking me. They're going in saying, oh, they're just, those gods are just like all the other gods. We can plunder them just like we've plundered everyone else. Look at all that we've accomplished. We're unstoppable. Our power and might and wisdom have accomplished all of this. We can lay claim to the heaven and the earth. All that we want is ours. We have that capability. God says, I will not make you do anything you don't want to do. God, said, God is not making them be wicked. 
God is not saying to the king of Assyria, I am, you are going to go into Israel and punish them for their idolatry and sin. And the king of Assyria says, oh God, I really don't want to do that. You know, I really actually would prefer to be a blessing to the nations. You know, I, I have all sorts of philanthropic projects to work out. Uh, I was just going to go in and, and, and help them, you know, maybe learn a little bit more about agriculture so they can grow better crops. God says, no, you're my, you're my tool. You're going to go in and punish them. No, the, the king of Assyria says, this is what I want to do. And God is so big that not only can he work good out of evil, God can simultaneously use the evil that is naturally in people's hearts. So in the exact same event, they act with one intention. God acts with the opposite intention. They're culpable and guilty for what they do. What they do is evil, but simultaneously through them, God accomplishes good purposes. And you can either believe that or you can't. God is either that big or he's not. This is not a picture of a small God. This is not a picture of a God who is incapable of accomplishing anything through anything at all. This is also not the only place where this is taught. But before we talk about that, we'll just look at verses 20 through 34 quickly. Verses 20 through 34, there's also this promise, though. Listen. Despite all the destruction, God says, I want you to know, my plan and my purpose is still going forward. There's still a remnant. I'm not done with you, Israel. I'm not done with my people. Uh, no, no matter what happens, I am doing this for your good. No matter what happens, I am at work. I have a long-term plan. So even if there's, there's slates of destruction, even if Assyria comes in, even if there is judicial and holy punishment, a remnant will return. There will be survivors, and they will be known by trusting in God no matter what through it all. That's how you'll know. So even though the nation is laid waste by Assyria, all of the people who are in rebellion against God are removed, and what's left is a purified group. And all that they have is God. That's all they have. And so they're known as the ones who cling truly, who truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, because all the props are knocked out. The, the, the one you were relying on is the one who destroyed you. And all you have is God. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Verse 24, therefore this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, my people who live in Zion do not be afraid. Of the Assyrians. You got anything you want there after do not be afraid. 
Historically, contextually, it's of the Assyrians. But what I'm going to do, and this is okay because I know it's wrong. You're always allowed. This is, this is one of the first things. This is actually this is one of the trade secrets that they teach you if you go to Bible college. You're allowed to misuse the text as long as you know you are. So that's what I'm doing. I'm intentionally now twisting the text into a metaphor. Because this wasn't a metaphor. This was a real nation coming into another real nation and destroying them. Metaphorically for us, because most of us aren't overly concerned with a roving band of Assyrians besieging our house later today. Maybe it depends on your neighborhood, but probably not for most. Who or, or what are your Assyrians? Because there's a lot of things that a lot of us are afraid of. There are a lot of things, a lot of difficult things that are currently surrounding a lot of lives that are in this room. And for some, there's, you know, it, it's interesting. You, you, get, you get a group this size, and, and there are some people today who wonderfully today are filled with joy, who are rejoicing and celebrating and happy. And, and when, when they count their blessings, it's really easy because, because there, there are just lots of examples of blessing crowning their life right now, and, and they feel close to God. That's a beautiful thing. Oh, to, to be able to live there day after day, and some people seem to be able to do that. And in a room this size, there are doubtless a, a, a number who are just, things are average, <laughs> whatever that looks like for you. Not too high, not too low. And there are others who are suffering. And there are others who are going through some really difficult things, like right now. That's one of the odd things about church is that you get all these different people, all this diversity of, of education and money and, you know, in a global sense, ethnicity and language. And all those social demographics in the church aren't supposed to matter one bit. And you throw people together and you say... Everyone get along and love each other. And the people who are all thrown together, there's heights of joy and depths of sadness. There's, there's fear and there's sorrow and there's rejoicing and celebration. And it's all here this morning. And it's all here all through our weeks and our days and our nights. 
So what are you going through? Really? That's a rhetorical question. Don't shut it out. Uh, unless you want to. That actually might make this very interesting. Uh, it might actually be like being a real church where it's not about having a religious service, but it's actually about growing together. That, that would be something. But today, who are your Assyrians? Maybe there aren't any for you right now. Good. But if there are, do you believe that simultaneously God is so big that no matter what's going on in your life, not only can He somehow salvage it for good, but He's actually at work right now right in the midst of it, simultaneously working through what you fear to the point where he can say, my people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of the Assyrians. Do not be afraid of whatever it is. It's okay. Trust me. Easier said than done. But this isn't the only text that tells us to do that. You will recall in Genesis 45, Joseph is talking to his brothers. And Joseph says, Come close to me. It's a fascinating line. Think about how afraid they were when they found out that this was Joseph. I mean, what little brother hasn't longed to be in the position of having the power of life and death over his brothers who've treated him badly? Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. In case you don't remember, that's my interpretation the one you sold into Egypt. Now, how do you feel at that moment if you're the brothers? Come close to me. I'm Joseph, your brother. As a reminder, you sold me into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Well, what was it? Did the brothers sell him into slavery in, in utter shameless selfishness and wickedness? Or did God send him? It was both. It was simultaneously they were acting with grotesque wickedness to sell their brother and God was, uh, was acting simultaneously through their deed to bring about the saving of many lives. That's a big God. That's a big God who can work through the sale of someone into slavery to save many lives. 
ironically, even the lives of the ones who sold him in the first place. Acts 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Acts 2, Peter preaching, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God through miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Well, what was it? Was it the wicked men who put him to death, or was it God's plan that put Christ on the cross? And it was both. Simultaneously. And that's why it's not blind faith. What this communion table represents is enough for us to trust God forever or we give up our faith. Because if God can bring about salvation and redemption and a new heaven and new earth through what Christ did on the cross, then there is nothing that can ever happen in the world, no matter how dark or hopeless it seems, no matter how chaotic, no matter how painful, no matter how unfair, there is nothing that will ever happen where we cannot trust that God will bring about good if we can see what God has brought about through the cross of His Son. This is the solution this is the anchor. This is your hope. If you cannot trust in God with this, you cannot trust in God at all. Is it enough? Is the blood of Christ enough? If it is, you who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid. Through the very worst, God brings about the very best. Trust Him. You, with the help of, through the hands of wicked men, put Him to death, Peter says. But, you, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death, but God raised Him from the dead. Because, freeing him from the agony of death, because, why? Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now that, like, all the Bible's inspired, that's a heck of a good line, right? Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible, it couldn't happen. Death could not keep a hold of Jesus. 
Jesus could die because he gave up his spirit, but death couldn't hold him. Death was not his, his master. Death was the last enemy. Death was the last dragon, and Jesus defeated it. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If God's Son can defeat death, child of God, what are you afraid of this morning? How big are the Assyrians? when the Son of God defeats sin and shame and guilt and the devil and death itself. Trust. Trust a God who is much bigger than we tend to think, who can do more than we can ask or imagine. And I will say this, because this is just true. God does not, obviously, God does not promise to exempt you from the Assyrians and all the consequences that are entailed by that. But He does promise you that no matter what happens in your life, He is in control. You will be okay no matter what. Even if it's death. You'll be okay. Because of Jesus. You can either trust Jesus or you give up your faith. But we have every reason to trust Him. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our hope. May God help us as we celebrate communion together to appreciate the promise that this is, the security that this is, the anchor that this is, for all the circumstances of our lives, Jesus is greater. Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus has done it all. Let's trust in Him. I'm going to ask those who are going to help distribute these elements to come forward. You can take a moment uh, to pray individually, to prepare yourself uh, for communion, then we'll celebrate it together. Just take a moment to pray.
God, you're so big. And our ability to understand is so small. I pray that you'll have mercy on us, Lord. Forgive our fears and doubts. You know, we thank you that you do know how hard it is to be us. How hard it is to be finite and small, but also rebellious. How sin clouds our judgment, clouds our perceptions. Father, forgive us and help us. Give us aid. Give us your spirit. Give us mercy and grace. But Lord, help us to see, too. Help us to see all the reasons we have to trust you. And help us to, no matter what our circumstances this morning, help us to be able to rejoice in Jesus. What he has done for us, who he is, all that he offers us, this, this, promise, that is, that, this promise that overwhelms all of the trials of life. Help us to see reality through the cross and the resurrection. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.